Well, over the last couple of weeks, I hope that uh, you are convinced that you're on the naughty list, that you were born on the naughty list, and there's nothing that you can do to get yourself off of the naughty list. If, if you weren't here the last couple of weeks, this is the title of our Christmas series, The Naughty List, and it's a metaphor, right? It's, there, is, there is not a real, you know, God does not keep a naughty list, but God knows. God knows that we are all born sinners that need a Savior, and this Christmas series is a good way to remind ourselves of the bad news so that come Christmas morning, the good news might mean a little bit more to us. Last week, we, we did learn this, that though we were born sinners, born in Adam, right? We were born in Adam, sinners by nature, not, not by simply activity. But because of Jesus, when we believe the gospel, when we put our faith in him, when we repent and, and, and make him Lord, master, king of our lives, that, that something happens that no longer are we seen as being in Adam, but he moves us and we are now identified as being in Christ. And just as our lives were affected by Adam, so also when we become followers of Jesus, our lives are affected by him, or at least it should be. His life in us and us in him. Today, um, I'm, I'm going to talk primarily to those who are in Christ, those who have made the decision to, to follow him, repented of your sins, trusted in him, and uh, would consider themselves Christians, Christ followers, disciples of Jesus. And today we're going to look at some things, some truths about ourselves that m might be at times hard for us to believe, but, but nonetheless, they are true. And kind of as an introduction, I, I want to I want to give you some terms that we'll, we'll refer to later on. And these are theological terms, and we're not big on churchy words or churchy terms, but these are three theological churchy words that are super important, they're super foundational, and they're, they're vital uh, for what we're going to talk about today. And, and, and these, are, these are the words. The words are justification, sanctification, and glorification. And what those words really are about, they're really about three different phases or three different angles, aspects, elements of our salvation. Justification has to do with the past. We often say, I have been justified. Sanctification is a word that deals with the present. I am being sanctified. Glorification is a word that has to do with the future. I will be glorified. Breaking it down a little bit further, when we look at each of the words, there's something that we can think about when we consider each one. Justification, let's start there. Justification means that we are free from the penalty of sin. 
Justification means that we have been accepted by God, that, that we have been made right with God, that we now have a right relationship with God. And justification is not found by doing good works. It's not found by going to church. It's not found by having religion. It's not found by trying to, to keep the law. Being justified has to do with our faith in Jesus alone. And as a result of placing our faith in Jesus alone for our salvation, the scripture says that we are completely forgiven. It means that we're not going to have to pay for our own sins. And from God's perspective, we're free from the penalty that our sin actually deserves. Another way to say it is, when it comes to God, those of us who have been justified It's just as if I'd never sinned. And that doesn't make any sense. But from God's perspective, when he sees us, he sees us as though we have never sinned. Justification means that we are freed from the penalty of our sins. And I'm thankful that we've been justified. Sanctification means that we are set free from the power of sin. There's a difference there. Sanctification is is about what's going on in our lives at this moment. It's the process that begins the moment that we're justified and doesn't end until one day when we're glorified. It's what the life of following Jesus is all about. It's about ongoing, progressive, never stops sanctification, our continued growth in Christ. It's about learning to become more and more like him, his life, his ministry, his mission. It's learning to walk in his steps. We understand that from a sanctification process, that we'll never get it 100% right, but sanctification is the journey toward imitating Jesus. Direction, not perfection is the goal of our sanctification. And then the word glorification. Glorification means that we are set free from the presence of sin. One day, there won't be a naughty list. One day, sin will not be a problem for any of us or anyone else. And on that day, there will be no sorrow There will be no tears. There will be no problems. There will be no worries. Why? Because we will have been set free from the very presence of sin for all of eternity. Sin won't be around. It won't bother us anymore. And I'm looking forward to that day. Today of the three, we're thinking more about sanctification All of us, I think, are going to be able to identify with what we're going to unpack today because it has to do with these two boxes, the the in Adam and the in Christ boxes. And and let me just start with the question. Maybe you've thought it, maybe you've never thought it before, but if it's true, and it is, that God sees me as being in Christ then why in the world do I keep acting like my first father, Adam? 
Why do I keep acting like my first father? Or if God, maybe we could say it this way, if God doesn't see me on the naughty list, but he sees me as redeemed, as forgiven, as adopted, as justified, right? Why do I keep doing naughty things? Why do I keep doing sinful things? Why does my name, figuratively speaking, keep ending up on the doggone naughty list? Those questions really are a question of our old nature versus our new nature. Or or the reality of the fact that even though that we are in Christ, Adam still lingers in Christ all of us. See, I I hope that at some point in our journey as followers of Jesus, and it maybe didn't happen the moment that you became a Christian, but hopefully as you journeyed toward Christ, as you began to follow him and, and wrestle with what it looks like to be a disciple, a question popped up in your mind, came up in conversation, it's some of them maybe even right now that just you just keep wrestling with. And that's this is how, how do I how do I break the power of sin in my life? How, how do I break the power of that part of me that's just like Adam? How do I break the power of my old nature? And and here's here's the straight up, totally honest answer. You can't. You've tried and you've failed. You can't, I can't, we can't break the power of sin on our own. This morning, I want us to open our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6. We were in Romans 5 last week. We're going to be in Romans 6 today. And Paul is, in this chapter, he's, he's addressing sin, and specifically sin's power in our life, the, the, t- t- the temptation, the tendency, the pull for us back into this old way of life as opposed to living out the reality of who Christ says that we are. And in chapter 6, he, he talks about the two, two different things. He, he says, there's some things that you've got to know, and there are some things that you have to do. Before we get to a lot of the things that we have to do, I want us to spend the majority of our time this morning looking at what Paul says that we must know if we're ever going to live out the identity that Christ has given to us when we believe in him. It's the difference, theologically speaking, between what is described as positional truth and experiential truth. All right, we're gonna do a little bit of a theology lesson today. The difference between positional truth and experiential truth. See, positional truth is different from what we often experience. And so let me just ask some questions and tease this out so you get a picture of this. So, question. Can something be true without ever having experienced it? Can something be true and you have never experienced it? Sure it can, right? 
I, I, is China true? China is true. It's true. It's not a myth. There is a place called China. Most people in this room have never experienced it, or so I assume. Just because you've never experienced China doesn't mean China does not exist. Uh, another question, can something be true even though you've never felt it? Even though you've never felt it? Uh, listen, we know that gravity exists, but have you ever really felt the force of gravity? You're like, well, every time I trip and fall, I feel the force of gravity, I get that. But there's actually a force that exists with gravity, and we've never felt the, the force of gravity, but, but we all know that it exists. Can something be true even though we don't understand it? For sure. Hello, internet, right? Hello, electricity. Well, some of you don't understand electricity. I don't, but I'm glad when I flip the switch, the light comes on. That's all I need to know. Very, I don't need to understand it all. I'm just glad that it works. I'm glad that when I type some, some words on a, into a computer screen and hit send, I get all kinds of information, right? I don't understand how that works. It doesn't make any sense, but I don't have to understand it for it to be true. One other one, can something be true even though you may not believe it? Can something be true even though you may not believe it? And again, only because it's such a simple Simple illustration, all right? We can go back in history and look at different events in history, and you may have an opinion about an event, but just because you have an opinion about an event, what did or didn't happen with a specific event, doesn't make it true or not. You can believe, or something can be true even though you may not believe it, right? And I'll just go ahead and just, again, we got different people, we're all adults here. Like, there are people, when, when, you, just, when you put these two words together, January 6th, there are people who believe things to be true about that, even though it didn't happen. And there are things that people don't believe is true about that, that actually did happen, right? So even when we just go back to short time in history, we, something can be true even though you don't believe it. And then we go back further in time and further in time and, and there are things we believe and don't believe doesn't make it true or not, right? So we can believe, we can believe that or something can be true even though we don't believe it. All right, so having said all that, there are some things in the Bible that God says about you that from a, a circumstantial perspective, you might be tempted to think, this doesn't make any sense. God, I, I don't understand it. God, I, I, I've never experienced it. God, I've never felt it. God, I don't know that I can believe it. But the reality is they're true, whether you see it, feel it, understand it, or believe it. So again, for instance, the Bible says that once you believe the gospel, once you've repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ alone, that you are completely forgiven. You're completely forgiven. Yet many Christians still live lives filled with guilt and shame. 
right? They positionally, God says you're forgiven, but experientially, they struggle with that idea. They, they struggle with that concept. If you're taking notes, you can say this. Positional truth is what God says about my Christian life. Positional truth is what God says about my Christian life. Write that down. Experiential truth is when I begin to live the way God sees me. Let me say it again. Experiential truth is when I begin to live the way that God sees me when I begin to act on what God says. And so, again, just trying to lay this all out, let me give you some facts about us, S some facts about what God says about us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. He, he wants us to know these things. If we're ever going to experience it, if we're ever going to feel it, if we're ever going to embrace it and, and act on what God says, these are some things that God says about us. I don't want you to feel. God doesn't want you to feel as though you're perpetually on the naughty list. And that's an issue for some today. So in Romans chapter 6, Paul again is talking to believers in Rome. And he says this, and, and again, Roman, the book of Romans is, is a great theological treatise, uh, I think the best ever written. And when we get to, to chapter 6, which those chapters are man-made. Paul never put chapter 6, verse 1. He's just writing this letter. And, and he gets to the point in this letter where he says this in verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? He's asking a rhetorical question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And you may feel like that question comes out of nowhere, but it really doesn't. But, but Paul asked the question, should we who are in Christ, those of us who have made the decision to follow Jesus, should we just go on sinning? Paul is talking specifically about deliberate sin, the ongoing, habitual, careless, reckless, I really don't care what anybody says, I'm going to do what I want type of sin. He says, should we do that as followers of Jesus? Should we just keep on sinning? Why does he bring this question up? Well, in the previous chapter, chapter 5, verse 20, if you want to let your eyes go up to chapter 5, verse 20, he says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. The law is to show us how bad we are. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Or another way of saying this is Paul is communicating that wherever things get really bad, that's when God's grace really shows up. Where sin increases, grace abounds even more. And so, again, knowing human nature, all right, Paul understood that there would have been some smart Alex who may have read that and said, well, if that's the case, if the more that we sin, the more God's grace shows up, then let's just go live it up. Let's just go and sin our guts out. Let's just go for it because we're all about God's grace and the more that we sin, the more that we live it up, the more that we do our own thing, then God's grace is even bigger. 
And we can go, look at how good and gracious God is, but we use our sinfulness as a way, our deliberate, willing, intentional sinfulness as a way to brag about God's grace. That, that whole thing, that, that, that sounds silly, but it still happens today. The truth of the matter is that's, that is misusing and abusing what Paul says. So Paul continues in verse number two. Should we continue sinning to show God's grace? Verse two, he says, by no means. By no means. Some of your, your translations might read, God forbid, or absolutely not. But Paul says, no way. No, 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 no. Before you start making the case, let me be straight up with you. You're not to go on sinning so God can show off his grace. Why? Continue reading. Verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Why can't we just sin like it's no big deal and point everybody to God's grace? Because Paul says we died to sin. We died to sin. Is he saying that as Christians we'll never sin? No, that's not the case. We know that through other places in the Bible. We know that for other, from other things that Paul talked about, even of himself, that he continued to struggle with sin. But what Paul is saying, and what we need to remind ourselves of, is this reality that if we are followers of Jesus, at some point in our journey, we're going to recognize that because we're in Christ, that also means that we're dead to sin, and I can't continue to live in that sin. I can't continue to deliberately, intentionally, and willfully sin as though I'm getting away with something. We can't make a practice of it. If we're following Jesus, it's going to come out in our life. If we're following Jesus, we can't say there is no change. There, there's no need to change. And if you're a follower of Jesus and, and, and you're not willing to deal with and think about and confess and admit to those sin issues in your life, then Paul would say, maybe you're not even what you claim to be. You don't continue sinning habitually, willingly, easily, or happily if you are in Christ. Why? Because Paul says that we are dead to sin. Uh, the message translation was interesting, and I, I don't remember the, fr the phrase that he used in the, in the message translation, but he talked about the fact that, that sin is a dead language to us if we're in Christ. And I thought about that. And if I were to go to China, right, and, and walk the streets, native uh, men and women to China could give me instructions in their native tongue, but I wouldn't understand it. It's a dead, it might as well be a dead language to me. I don't speak the language and I don't understand the language. But if I were to walk the streets in Clarion and somebody were to give me instructions, I understand that language. That's a living language to me. I'm alive to that language. And I, and I thought in Peterson's a paraphrase of this passage when he used that. It was helpful to me to, to think about. And so in that sense, that, that as followers of Jesus, that, that, that when sin speaks, and we're going to talk more about this next week, 
that, that it should be a foreign language, a, an even stronger, a dead language to us. It does not affect us any longer. And so again, we're wrestling with how do we begin to, to see the power of sin break in our lives. Paul gives us some facts. The first fact is this. When we became believers, and this is a little bit of review, we were placed in Christ. That's the, the justification moment, that he took us from being in Adam and he placed us in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, in Christ, we are in Christ, be found in him, is used 120 different times in the New Testament. You could probably say that it is the number, number one way that we are identified as Christians, that God says we are in Christ. This is a powerful and true biblical illustration of how God sees us. We're in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, and we, we used it last week, but I want us to see it again. Paul wrote this uh, later to the church in Corinth. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's that phrase again, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's implications here. Because I'm in Christ, that means, in a sense, that I was crucified and buried and I was resurrected with him. And, and so Paul is so concerned that we get this truth, that he gives us an illustration that helps make the point, that helps drive it home. Let's continue reading in verse 3 and 4. Paul continues, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He, he uses baptism to help us illustrate the reality that we are dead to sin that we were buried with Christ and resurrected with him. You know, when we do baptisms, you, you hear us talk about, again, we put a big emphasis on the celebratory nature of it, that, the, that when somebody is baptized, that we're observing them, picturing what Christ did for them, that he died on the cross, was buried and rose again. And yes, we should celebrate baptisms when we see baptisms. But this week I was reminded of a second reality when we see somebody being baptized and, and that it's not just a celebration. In a sense, it's a funeral. In a sense, what that person who's being baptized is saying is, I I'm dead. I recognize that I am dying to self. I am dying to sin. I, I, I have, I, and I didn't do it, but, but because of Christ, that this declaration that, that I am dead to sin. And that's, when, that's why when we bring somebody up out of the water, what do we always say? Raised to walk in newness of life. That's that personal peace. That's why baptism means something. That's why it matters. It's why it's important. And, and, and there, again, there's nothing mystical or magical about the water itself. 
But that symbolism, that step, that, you, that declaration that, man, I'm identifying with Christ and his death and burial and resurrection, and I'm also reminding myself that I'm dead too, that I've died to sin, and I am going to begin to walk in this newness, this new way of living that Christ has made possible for me. Christ placed us in him. Baptism is a great kind of dual, parallel picture of, 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 that, of that reality. Here's another reality. When Christ died, my old sin nature, my old sin nature was crucified with him. Look at what it says in verse five. It says, for if we have been united with him in a death like this, right, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. We'll get to that in a minute. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. When he says set free from sin, what's he talking about here? Those three phases stages of salvation, when he says we've been set free from sin, and Paul doesn't say this explicitly, but we can understand this if we step back and think about it. He's saying that we've been set free from the penalty of sin. We've been set free from the power of sin. He's talking about our justification and our sanctification. And we know he's not talking about the presence of sin because, hello, we still live in the presence of sin, but not always, not forever. So when he says that, there's a, that in a very real sense, our old nature was crucified with him, which begs the question, <clears throat> can you tempt a dead man? Can you tempt a dead man? If we understand that, that, that in, a, in a very real kind of spiritual sense that we may not be able to explain, but again, just because we can't explain it doesn't mean it's not true. We're dead to sin because of Christ. And if that's true, then the reality is temptation does not have to have any effect on our life. Whatever the temptation, why? Because I'm dead. You can't tempt me. I'm dead. And dead people don't sin. I mean, in a sense, that's the message of Christianity. Dead people don't sin. And we're all living, breathing, walking dead people. Let me illustrate it this way. I heard this years and years ago. There was a seminary professor who was trying to teach this, this concept about being dead to sin. Told his students, he said, here's what I want you to do for homework today. I want you to go to the local cemetery. And I want you to find somebody that's buried there. It doesn't matter who it is. And I want you to look at that tombstone. I want you to look down where they're buried. And I want you to call that person all kinds of awful, mean, nasty names. And I went. So he did it. Come back and the professor says, okay, how many of y'all did that? And they're like, yeah, we did that. That felt weird. That was kind of weird. And all right, what's the point? He's like, okay, okay. And I want you to go back again today. And now I want you to, to, to shower that person 
with all kinds of praise. Like, say all kinds of good things about them. Tell them how wonderful they are, how great they are, how awesome they are. Puff them up. This is weird. These seminary students run with graves and, you know, saying all these weird things to these tombstones. They come back to class the next day. And like, prof, we did it. Like, what, what was that all about? And the prof asked them, he said, when you said all kinds of mean, nasty things to the person that was buried, what did they do? And you all know the answer. They didn't do anything. And, and, and likewise, when you praise them and you puff them up and you tell them how great they are, what did they do? Well, they, they, they didn't do anything. They're, they didn't respond. They're, they're dead. He's like, Exactly. That, that's what it's like to be dead to sin. That, that no matter what happens to you, no matter what people do or say or how they treat you, it doesn't affect you. you you're not tempted to respond, to react, because you're dead to sin. It doesn't affect you any longer. Romans 6, we're, we're talking about this, this identity, being identified with Christ, and this, this battle with the old man. And again, let's just remind ourselves what we're talking about here, that it's that part of you that doesn't want anything to do with Christ. And this is the battle, like, like when we trust Christ, this doesn't go away. It's still here. Our old nature, the old self is still there. But God doesn't see us as being here. He sees us as being here. Let me just illustrate this by reading a, a passage. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses. It's a little lengthy passage, but I want you to see this. Verses 17 through 24. Listen to the, to the language that Paul uses. And this is throughout Paul's writings. It's throughout a lot of the, the New Testament author's writings. Verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Then he says this, But this is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And then he says, to put off your old self. To put off that part of you that, that identifies with Adam, your first father, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. There's the in Christ part created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And we could have gone to dozens of other pa passages that kind of illustrate that difference between old and new, the, the Adam part of us and the Christ part of us. And, and look back at Romans chapter 6, and I said I'd get to this because I think this phrase is so important. Paul says in Romans 6, verse 6, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. And then he says, why? Why is this important? In order that the body of sin might be, and then underline this in your Bible, highlight it, brought to nothing. 
that it might be brought to nothing. Some of your translations might say done away with. Some of your translations might, be, might say destroyed. But whatever your translation says, if you, if you have a margin, put a little arrow out in the margin, I want you to write these two words. The, the best way to understand brought to nothing is with these two words, rendered powerless. That's what Paul's getting at. That, that, that sin would be rendered powerless. I wish he would have said that sin might be annihilated. But that's not what he said because it's not true. But what Paul says is that because of Christ, sin can and is rendered powerless. If you're a follower of Jesus, let me just be bottom line with you. You do not have to sin anymore. You don't have to. You do not have to sin. You can choose not to sin because you have everything in you to not sin. And that everything that you need is a person. And his name is the Holy Spirit. And when you became a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit came in to take up residence in you. And he's the one who gives you the power to say no to sin. Because the Holy Spirit has rendered sin powerless in your life. Now again, I'm not saying that you can be perfect. But I'm saying you can choose not to sin. And we've all said this. We've all been thought it, said it, believe it. Well, I just couldn't help myself. I just couldn't stop. That might be your experience You may think that, but God says, that's not true. I gave you everything that you need when I gave you the spirit of God, my spirit in you to say no to sin. Before you became a Christian, not so much. You didn't have the power to stop. You didn't have the power to change. You you might have started new habits only to fail. And the reason is because you didn't have the power. But now it's been rendered powerless. It's like this tree. The Holy Spirit, when it comes to sin, unplugs the power. So that when temptation comes, sin doesn't have power in your life anymore. When trials come, doesn't mean that trials aren't real, but in your trial, in your struggles, it doesn't have to lead you down a sinful path, which it often does. Why? Because sin has been rendered powerless. When somebody says or does or acts in a way toward you, that has typically led you to some kind of a sinful decision, a sinful choice. Positionally, what God says is true. I don't care what your experience tells you. It's true, sin has been rendered powerless in your life. But I keep sinning. I I keep doing it. I keep going back at it again. Well, guess who is in charge of giving sin back its power? This is my Chevy Chase moment. 
Ugh. We are. We give sin back its power. Hey, don't blame God. God said, as far as I'm concerned, it's powerless. And I gave you my spirit. Quit giving sin power again. And then third, we need to understand this, that Christ's resurrection has guaranteed our ultimate victory. Our ultimate victory. Look what it says in verse eight. It says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And then listen, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Alive to God. Death has been defeated. And I can think of no worse enemy than the enemy called death. And because of Christ's resurrection, we have been given ultimate victory over death. And we can rest in that. That, that yes, and again, I'm being bold because I want you to understand what is positionally true so that you can take some steps in your life to experience this truth. But we understand that, that until we get to glorification, until we escape the very presence of sin, that sin will still be present and there's still a battle. But we can walk knowing that ultimately we are guaranteed victory because of Christ's resurrection. And those are the facts, whether you experience, whether you feel it, whether you believe it or not. And some of you are saying, but what does this knowledge really do for me? Those are great facts, Trent. Positional truths, one, two, and three, appreciate that. But you don't understand, Trent, I still have to go home and live with them. I still have to go home and, and go to work tomorrow and deal with them. I, I still have to sit alone with my thoughts and think about that. I, I still have to live life, Trent. Those are wonderful facts, but I still find myself losing and living like my first father, Adam. We're going to talk more about it next week, but for this week, there's one word that I want you to apply to your life. Look again at verse 11, and you'll see it. Paul says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What's the word that I want you to dwell on, meditate on, soak in this week? It's the word consider. Consider. Again, some of your Bible verses or some of your Bible translations might use the, the word reckon. And in the original language, that word that's translated reckon in your King James, if you're using a King James or the word cons consider, it is a business term. It's an accounting term. It, 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 it means to compute, to calculate. Again, just like an accountant would, 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 would compute, calculate, would, would reckon their books, make sure everything is lined up. 
Again, from a very like practical sense, it means to count on it, to, to believe it, to consider it. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Count on it. Take it to the bank. Believe it. Now, again, I can't say this, I can't say this strong enough. I'm not talking about pretending. He doesn't say, pretend as though this is true. He says, consider it true because it is true. Reckon it to be so. Why? Because it is so. We're not pretending that sin doesn't have any effect on us. We're considering the fact that sin doesn't have any effect on us. We are dead to sin and alive to God. But Trent, I don't feel that way. I don't feel dead to sin or alive to God. The truth of the matter is I feel more alive to sin and dead to God. Positional, experiential. Positional, what God says. Experiential, what I think, how I feel. The question that you've got to wrestle with, that you have to consider, is am I going to trust my feelings or trust God's word? God says, the way that you take something that is true and put it into your life, positional becomes experiential. First, you've got to reckon it. You've got to consider it. You've got to count on it. You have to begin to agree with God about that thing. And again, I, I look at I'm, I don't know how it all works out. I don't understand it. But, but we have to learn to say, God, because I am in you, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm risen to walk a new life because of you, Christ, then, then you say that I'm dead to sin. And I don't know how all that works out, but this week I'm gonna, I'm gonna live as though it's true. Because it's true. I'm dead to sin. I don't have to be affected by it anymore. Again, this is not the power of positive thinking. Because positive thinking does us no good if it's not rooted in the truth. And what I'm trying to get across to you is this is truth. It's what God says. So this week as the worship team comes, I want you to think, to consider that though sin is alive in you, it doesn't control you. It is not your master. I want you to consider, I want you to think about, I want you to, to reckon and believe that you have God's life in you. You have the spirit in you. In God's life, the spirit is not enslaved to sin. And because he's not, neither are you. You're not. Until you, unless you plug in the power. You give sin its power back. I want you to consider the reality that you are dead to sin, but alive to God. And the more we begin to think those 
truths, the better positioned we'll be to experience them as true. Let's bow our heads. Father, we are grateful for this day and we're thankful for your word to us. God, again, these are not easy words. Paul, God, thank you for the wisdom that you gave him and, and how you, you, again, worked through his words and have been working through them for a couple thousand years uh, to help believers to understand these realities. And, and I pray, God, that for us as a body that we would um, not just accept them as positional truth, but that we would begin to experience them, experiencing them in our daily lives because they are indeed true. And we'll be thankful for that. Again, nobody's, again, I don't do this often, but I'd love the opportunity to pray for you and maybe have other people pray for you, but very simply, hey, hey, Trent, thanks. The word of God and the spirit of God taught me something, reminded me of something, challenged me with something, and I'd sure appreciate your prayers today. Anybody want me to pray for them? I'm not going to call you out. I just want to pray for you. All right, hold them up, hold them up, hold them up. Be, be honest. Okay, I got you. My hand's in the air. This, the message, again, it's, 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 it's usually a good message if the message, you know, kind of kicks me in the teeth as I prepare and the message kicked me in the teeth because I need this. I need to be reminded of these things on a regular basis. So I'm going to pray for those who raise their hand and then the invitation is simply let somebody else pray for you. Tap somebody on the shoulder, find your D group leader or whoever you're in a D group with. Uh, ask me, ask Jacob, ask Matt. We'll come down here in the front and be ready to pray with you. But this is a time for believers to respond to what God has taught them. Not out of guilt or shame, but out of like, yeah, I, I need to take this step. I need somebody to pray for me about whatever it is that God's dealing with you about. And if you're not a Christian, you've not yet taken that step to begin following him, this message wasn't, again, um, directed to you, but, it's, but it, it's important that you understand that in Christ there is forgiveness of sin. He lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again so that you and I could be forgiven. And if you've never started following Jesus and are ready to start following him, then let's have a conversation about what that looks like. Father, use this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and, and Matt, come on down. Jacob, come, in, come on down. Anybody who just wants somebody to pray for them, that's what this time is for. Let's sing together.